linear thought process is dangerous, right? To the extent that it might take you all the way till the end, <laughs> until the person trusts you enough to the point where you will have them admit that the driving force is fear of failure. And they're on the hook for the solution working in the last three times they tried and failed miserably. So now we're really talking about something. But it might take you seven calls to get there because they just don't trust you yet. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Dave Shaby. Dave's the COO at Rain Group and co-author of a book titled Virtual Selling, How to Build Relationships, Differentiate, and Win Sales Remotely. Now, this is a fun conversation that gets to the heart of some of the key issues that sellers are confronting in this new sales world. We'll call it a new sales world. And so in this conversation, we talk about how in the past 12 months have accelerated this inevitable transition to more virtual selling and what this all means for sellers. So we dive into some of the research that Dave used for this book, including buyer selling, but buyer saying, excuse me, that sellers are not very effective when it comes to virtual buyer interactions. But there are some certain areas they're doing a remarkably poor job in. And actually, these are the areas that most influence the buyer's decisions which really raises the issue, which Dave and I get into, which is whether sellers weren't doing a great job on those areas before virtual selling. I mean, good sellers that have a solid process didn't suddenly become incompetent once they had to go online. So there's more at play here, and we dig into that. We also dive into the 10 seller behaviors that B2B buyers say have the greatest impact on their purchase decisions. And then they compare those, the importance of those, versus the effectiveness of sellers in those areas. So lots of great practical takeaways and knowledge today. Before we get to Dave, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Great. Great to be here. You said uh, it was snowing where you are. It is gently snowing. I wouldn't call it a uh, snowstorm, but it is uh, picturesque snow outside. Yes. Not a snow day. Well, your kids may be on permanent snow day right now, but. Um. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so tell us a little bit about your sales background. I mean, how did, how did you get into sales? Yeah, I um I worked for a company called Bright Horizons for a long time in the uh, in the marketing and sales space, almost twenty years. Mm-hmm. We have sales functions on the consumer side, so the company specializes in um, selling education, and so I led out both the marketing team and also the consumer sales team, and it was really organic for me. I just sort of fell into it, and uh, before I knew it, I had a, about 100 people working on my team. So I had a fairly large group, both marketing and sales, as I said. Um, and I, uh, I became aware of the Rain Group. Um, I had worked with some of those guys before and went through some of their trainings and you know, really got into the technical side of selling and just understanding more about it. So um, I, I wouldn't call it a planned career. I would say it was an accidental but uh, sort of happy engagement that lasted a long time. Yeah, so Bright Horizons, I wasn't really aware of it, but it's, it, you said education, but doesn't it, it's like early child education, right? Exactly, yep. Schools uh, schools specializing in uh, 
in early education centers. So pre-K, is it franchise or is it all company-owned centers? Or? All company-owned. All company-owned. So what was the sales motion for Bright Horizons? Yeah, so the, there were two tracks. One is Bright Horizons had schools, had schools um, open to the public. Anybody can enroll. And if you think about you know the cost of child care and what, what the lifetime value is there, uh, a consumer sale there can be worth fifty, sixty thousand mm-hmm. so dollars le- leading out that function for thousands of centers or a thousand centers or so. And was um, there a, a salesperson in each center? Yeah, there was a combination of an in-center salesperson along with a um, a group of people that worked outside of centers. Think about um, like the real estate agent model where you'd have people who would work um, representing centers and working directly with families. And then there was the B2B side, which is uh, the benefit, selling benefits um, to uh, companies who would buy childcare services. And while that group wasn't under me, I worked to support them and worked with them for the entire time I was there. So that's like on-premise childcare facilities at corporations. Exactly. Yeah. Think of Fortune 500 companies, very common to have childcare centers um, as part of the benefit package. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's where I got my start. A um, lot of uh, B2C, you know, just really studying the, the behavior of the buyer, creating processes, using contact centers, helping them, um, you know, how to, how to train people. I trained thousands of people in that role, which was probably the most fun part of it. Um, and so that's, uh, that was where I got my start. And then I've moved to Rain Group in the last couple of years. And we're your COO for them. Correct. And, and you just uh, co-authored a book on virtual selling. Um, before we get to that, though, is, is setting aside virtual selling is, is so – from your perspective, and you spent years working for a yeah, publicly traded company and now working for this, uh, the Rain Group a training organization. Yeah, just sort of looking forward, is what do you see as like maybe the two biggest challenges for individual contributors in sales over the next year or two? Yeah, I mean, interesting question because the, the, the timeline is probably one of the important factors, right? Because people have been trying to. Um, Re- reinvent themselves to some degree in the virtual selling and economic downturn um, the situation they find themselves in. And so sellers are trying to figure out how to manage their time, how to manage new technology, and how to manage relationships in a virtual setting. So, you know, over the next one to two years, it's it's really honing their sales skills under those conditions and I think, you know, as we talk to clients and we ask them, well, what are the things that are bothering you now that you foresee, you know, continuing to be a challenge, um, developing relationships virtually is probably the number one common answer that we get, which is, you know, naturally salespeople are usually gifted at social settings and building rapport and um, meeting people in person and having a, a good outcome. Um, to the extent that that's been lost for most people, it may not come back soon. That's probably number one. And then number two is um, making sure that people can see value, um, again, without the benefit of being there in person. So those, those are the things that I think will stick. All right. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit because this is, this is a thing that, that – um... <laughs> I have an issue with. <laughs> okay. It is – you know, and so much of the talk around virtual selling is there's is based on this assumption that I think that there was more face to face selling going on than actually was, and 
I mean, the fact is, for <laughs> I remember talking to this group Enterprise Sales Forum, which says primarily were SaaS sellers. Uh, you know, they had chapters on the country. I was speaking to the one in Manhattan uh, session, maybe had 60 people there, and they were AEs and and uh, sales managers. <laughs> and yeah, I asked the question, you know, who who travels to see their customers? Yeah, and I asked people who are selling, yeah, you know, maybe hundred thousand dollar lifetime contract value, two hundred thousand, so on. maybe one hand goes up. I mean, I, I I just part of this this narrative about the shift to virtual selling that that I sometimes wonder whether we're we're accurately portraying it is that how much of sales actually happen face to face these days. Now there's certain some industries where it certainly was, but I think that was a dramatically decreased percentage than it was 20 years before. Yeah, uh, I, I, just, I, 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 I agree. So, I mean, we're setting up this narrative that it's like, oh, this is such a huge change. But on the other hand, is it really? Because, yeah, how often would you actually be face-to-face, if you could travel, be face-to-face with your customer during the course of their buying journey? And, yeah, yeah, I think that that's a fair point. Sorry to interrupt you. I, right. I think it's a fair point. So, well, it's just one I struggle with with this narrative because it's like I look at my own experience. I mean, I spent years working for startups in tech business, selling large, complex communication systems worth millions of dollars, and mostly overseas for about fifteen years. Primarily overseas. This is back in the eighties and nineties. I. I'd see the customers twice, maybe, to close a $20 million deal. Yeah. And the rest was on the phone. You know, I like to tell people, you know, virtual selling started when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. <laughs> yeah. So so um, it, it's a fair point and one that I, I can react to with, with one bit of data and then, you know, sort of our own circumstance. So we did research as we were, we being Rain Group did research Mm -hmm. with respect to writing this book and, you know, what was going on. And we're talking about back in April, May, uh, 2020. So, you know, the height of when things were changing rapidly and what we found through direct question in terms of what percentage of your selling has converted to virtual versus where it was before, you know, there was almost a 2x change in terms of the amount of selling going on virtually. But that's not to say that sellers weren't selling virtually before and all of a sudden 100% of the time they were. It's just that if you think about selling activities to include things like going to conferences, trade shows, events, etc., like no, no opportunity to get out at all. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that 100% of the time from the beginning of the sales cycle all the way through customer care is now done virtually and you're adding Zoom and, you know, online platforms to the mix. Whereas, you know, you mentioned the phone. I think a lot of people work the phones, especially for initial conversations. So it might not have always been video. So now sort of everybody... Is, is moved into one platform and it's happening rapidly. I think it's the, the, the rapid aspect of that change and the fact that it happened all at once. Even if 70% of your work was done virtually, whether you're using a phone or um, an, a video platform, I just do, do think that it was the shock of having everything happen at once that got people thrown off. And, yeah. and the, the second data point I can share is the number of clients that have come to us, a training company, 
to ask them what ask what to do, right? So just the market response that we've gotten around virtual selling tells us that there certainly was a bit of shock out there. Yeah, but I think the shock comes in a couple of different dimensions. One is I think that the we sort of you know thought leader type type we consultant we is is we're conflating virtual with video, mm-hmm. and I think this is this is the thing that that and we'll get to this topic later because I think there's also a danger of relying too much on the video um, instead of spending more time on the phone. And there's already been studies out that showing that the phone is maybe a better vehicle in certain circumstances on video for really understanding and being attuned to the buyer. But that's, you know, we'll get to that. But I wonder whether some of this shock is, is the reason companies are coming to you is that it's just the dislocation of the team from the offices, right? From their support mm-hmm. systems, from so Absolutely. on. It's, it's, it's not so much this act of actually selling virtually, which they've, been doing people have been using zoom to some less greater or lesser degree maybe they were using the phone more and they shifted the balance to zoom but but i think it's this dislocation that's really the issue right at least it seems like to me is uh, what i'm seeing and talking to people is like yeah we i'm out on my own here and yeah, I'm, I'm virtually part of a team as opposed to being part actually part of a team yeah, it's, a, it's definitely borne out in the conversations and the research that we've had as well that managing yourself as a remote seller, although many of these folks had home offices and would sort of bounce in and out of, 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 of a, an anchor office or location with other people, that, that, that teamwork, that togetherness, the, the being on the road with your sales manager, even for a finals presentation or whatever it might be, you know, the idea that it's, it's you, um, you and your computer now, and you know perhaps less direction. It, that is one of the daunting tasks of having this this happen really rapidly and having having a whole sales force go virtual. You also couple that with the reality of an economic downturn that happened at the same time, and it's sort of like you know filling the space where you might be prospecting now under those conditions. The least favorite thing for a lot of folks to do mm-hmm. in in a new setting. Uh, you know, the, 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 the cards start stacking up against you a bit. So I, I do think that it isn't just the act of selling. It's it's managing time. It is um, new activities associated with an economic downturn. It is, you know, I could list a, a bunch more, but I think it's the, the confluence of all of those things working together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, 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 on one hand, I think we, we make too big a deal of it. Mm. And I think that's part of the issue. I mean, we're creating this as there's been so many books written about <laughs> virtual selling in the short period of time. And, and granted, there are some things that that are different that need to be, uh, you know, demand attention, demand focus. But I just, yeah, I, I, I'm just concerned we make too much of it, and we're sort of freaking people out unnecessarily. Um, because I think for me, the bottom line is is. And I know people don't necessarily agree with this, but the baseline is you still have to be good at sales, right? I mean, if you don't have the fundamental ability to connect with somebody, if you don't have the curiosity, ask great questions, if you don't listen carefully, listen to understand, if you don't have some acumen you can add to be able to, to you know, provide some value to the buyer, it, the medium doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And, you know, sort of go back to your comment from before, the... 
the point of view that we have is not necessarily that this is time to panic and you have to retrain yourself and start over. And it's not a story of, um, you know, you have all these diminishing returns and now you have to claw your way back. It's really more, okay, there is this new medium. How do you take advantage of it when you do have all of the traditions and all of the skills around good sales, um, good sales work stand, right? Creating value for the buyer, uh, developing rapport, asking good discovery questions, helping a buyer solve a problem. None of that changes. And so to the extent that you now have a new medium and perhaps some new tools and some new methods, don't ignore that. And for those who can gain that advantage, it's it's a good time. It's it's time to separate yourself from the pack in certain ways. And when we did research and we asked buyers, you know, what was going on and how are sellers performing under these conditions, certain things came out that 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 sellers could certainly control. So, for example, one of the top things that buyers said w- was not going well was a lack of good visuals in the presentations that they were using the same slides that they always used and they were boring to them to tears. That, <laughs> Which, you well, know, they were to tears before. <laughs> well, perhaps, but in a live setting, you yeah. can sort of tap dance your way through it. Right. So right. If, if you're, if you're sitting there um, in your fifth zoom meeting of the day as a buyer and your seller is showing you uh, a slide that has 10 bullet points of text and there's absolutely no other engagement going on. And by the way, there's seven other people in the meeting. Mm-hmm. You're going to start checking your email, right? So it, it, was, it was things like that. And, you know, and again, we're not, we're not saying that sales has changed radically in terms of what, what is important. It's the medium enables certain things that you have to pay attention to and be maybe more proactive in thinking about than you, than you did before. Yeah. So, no, well, I think you brought up a great point because you did it right in in your book which i'm sorry i neglected to <laughs> to mention the, <laughs> the book uh you've offered a, new, a book called virtual selling and um yeah one of the points that you you brought up was this whole idea of that it's more challenging to keep them engaged the buyer engaged in especially in those group setting meetings that you talk about than mm-hmm. perhaps it was before um and so what are some strategies specifically around that? Because I think that there's some very tactical things that, that it, for me, it really comes down to some of those tactical things is, is okay, you know, I think about this, okay, if you've got seven, eight people in a meeting, maybe your strategy has to change that you really only do meetings with, maybe have fewer, or excuse me, more meetings with fewer people. Yeah, for sure. More meetings with fewer people, shorter meetings if, if necessary. Right. So you've got you've got limited attention. And again, think of the scenario where the buyer has been spending a a fair amount of time in this medium and they're they have the fatigue. And so controlling the number of people in a meeting is one way to to deal with, um, you know, that effect. There's actually a name for it, the Ringelman effect, which is the more people who are in a meeting, the more likely for any individual to sort of hide. Right. Their attention. Sure. Um, can be diverted more easily when there are the lots of other folks. We've all hit Sec- Yeah, for sure. So sec- and secondly, and probably most importantly, is um, something we call the engagement threshold, which is in a traditional meeting when you're live, um, you know, gaining somebody's attention and keeping it is a bit easier. And so using your visuals and using other engagement techniques, we'll talk about those in a moment, 
you know, you really want to change it up every 30, every, every 30 seconds you have to, you have 30 seconds or so to gain attention and about three minutes to maintain it. So every three minutes or so, you want to make some kind of change. So this is the very tactical part of it, whether it's a slide animation, a slide flip, um, adding some whiteboarding, doing some kind of collaboration, using a poll, uh, chat, etc. So five, six, seven different engagement techniques mixed up well, timed well, and you're 40 minutes into the meeting and people are still paying attention and they're engaging with you. So it's thinking about those things in advance and knowing that if I'm seven minutes in and I'm still making my speech on one slide, I'm probably losing people. And, you know, that goes for just an individual even. So that's, those are the kinds of things that we talk about in the book and um, some of the techniques and the ways that we, uh, we drive engagement, certainly whiteboarding, um, annotation, thinking about how to co-create using a slide. Those, those are the types of things that, um, you know, tend to work in terms of engagement. Well, what whiteboarding, what whiteboarding tools do you recommend? Um, well, we're not necessarily married to tools, although Miro, for example, is a good one. Mm -hmm. um, but using, the, you, using anything. So I'll give you an example. If you have a tool that you typically use for discovery, um, even if it is a simple uh, list of questions, if you took any whiteboarding tool, including what's available to you natively in Zoom, and you set up categories on the whiteboard in advance of a meeting to help with needs discovery, and you shared that whiteboard, it would not need to be exotic. Just annotate it, type, um, set it up, ask your buyer, did I get these categories right? Let's say you know you did some research. Here are the three things that I found out um, in doing some research that I think are valuable to talk about. Would you agree? Yes, no. All of a sudden, you're having a conversation and you're taking notes on the whiteboard. And again, the answer to the to your question is Miro is good, but the native um, whiteboards and the apps are fine because mm -hmm. it's not about the tech; it's about the technique. Well, I think that's a great point too. Is is another technique that I think people don't use enough, which is a little more demanding, but is you need to. Yeah, let's say you've got five people in the meeting. Is a you have to have done your research about these people. Mm -hmm. You have to really understand what's important to them prior to going in, but then you need to call on them. Right. You need to bring them into the discussion by name. And to your point, is I you say three minutes? I think that's maximum, right? I mean, ninety seconds, oftentimes, depending on what stage you're in in your your discussion, is a lot. Is bring people into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even small techniques like creating anticipation around somebody's, uh, you know, turn to speak. So if I said to you, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to review this for about 90 seconds, two minutes. And then when I'm done, I'd love to hear your feedback. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, you're anticipating the fact that you're going to speak in two minutes and you're going to listen to what I say for two minutes because you know that you're going to be asked to comment on it. So by just prompting the fact that you will speak in the future. I now have you in the present. And so you're, you're accomplishing two goals, right? You're, you're setting up the, a conversational component, and you're also getting them to re really, really understand what you're talking about for at least two minutes. Yeah. And the bottom line on that is that that's a, a great technique, whether in person or virtual Absolutely. or on the phone. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's you're, Again, you're trying to retain people's attention, and it's a great way to do that. Now, 
one thing that comes up quite a bit with virtual selling, you brought it up earlier, this idea about um, maybe harder to develop relationships with buyers virtually. Um, again, not one that I necessarily subscribe is the case, but but tell us what you're seeing and, and what buyer or seller should be doing about it. Yeah, I, I think the main the main emphasis for us in terms of why it's harder is there's no organic space to operate in. So, for example, you know if you're live and you're going to meet with a potential buyer or you're at a conference, you have social space. You have the ability to you know you're walking the hall, you're grabbing a cup of coffee, you have the five minutes before the meeting starts. You have space for rapport that you don't even have to think about. You just can do it. Um, when you when you have virtual meetings and you sign in and you have the initial questions, that goes by pretty quickly. And all of a sudden, you're into the body of the meeting. And so a couple of the things that we talk about in the book and that we advise is spend some pretty good time in the beginning with rapport and think about the questions that you want to ask initially. Plan that. Uh, make sure you have some favorite questions to get to know some people. So this mm-hmm. is not rocket science. It's just making sure you're pre- you're predicting that that's got to happen well. Because um, if you oh, go right into your agenda, right, you're you're sunk. The second thing is there may be individuals in a meeting. Let's say there's four people in the meeting. There's really one that you want to develop a relationship with. Ask them to stay afterwards for two minutes, five minutes. Just just make sure that you are thinking about how to manufacture some time with targeted people. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise they drop off the call and they can drop off earlier. They have other priorities. Like the second the call is planned to end, they leave. And then you have to re-engage them all over again. So again, these are not earth shatteringly hard to do. It's just thinking about them in advance and understanding the best way to, to accomplish that. So it's the rapport, it's making time, it's creating time with people, um, especially those you're targeting who are decision makers or, or, or key folks on your list. Right. Now, there's this, even before pandemic hit, there was this undercurrent of people posting on LinkedIn primarily and so on saying, yeah, relationships, yeah, not important in sales anymore. And I don't need to name names. People know who they are. Um, <laughs> what's your take on that? Disagree. <laughs> Disagree 100%. Um, I mean, we are, our research, our experience, what we see of successful sellers, it's not everything, but the absence of relationships, the ability to have people know, feel like they know you, have something in common with you, trust you, um, trust your company. The, to me, it's a fundamental. To us, it's a fundamental. And it's not, a, it's not uh, necessarily about um, you know, spending an enormous amount of time. It's just building up a sense of trust and reliability and some common ground where people feel like they like you and they want to work with you. I mean, to me, it's common sense and I don't think it's, uh, it's changed much at all. Well, I agree hundred percent. I mean, and yeah, I disagree completely with the people who are advocating. They're not, it's not important because to your point is trust can't exist in the absence of a relationship. Now, it doesn't mean it's a friendship. I know that freaks people out because they always think relationship equals friendship. So what I like to do is say, well, let's just stop calling a relationship. Let's just call it a connection. So you need to have a connection at a human level with somebody in order to develop the credibility and build the trust that enables them to make a decision to buy from you. And it's pretty simple. And so, yeah, is it more challenging 
virtually, well, to your point, I mean, there's certain things you want to pay attention to that cost you nothing to do. This is the part that gets me, <laughs> drives me crazy when people think this idea of relationships are as being non, non-important or unimportant. Is it, it costs you nothing to do. Yeah. Why wouldn't you do it? Because it could make the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, and, and I think that you know, you're also talking about the way that you come across. So people are building trust in you, not only based on the, the interactions that they're having with you in, in a personal setting, like a meeting or Zoom or what have you. They're also inferences based on what your LinkedIn profile says, who you're associated with, you know, all of the things around, and I hate to use this word because I, I don't like it, brand. Um, but just to the extent that you're, you're, you're sort of an extension of all of the things that you're putting out there and trust is a byproduct of all of that. So, you know, in a virtual setting, you just need to be mindful that you are setting the stage for trust when you're thinking about things like your LinkedIn profile, what you're publishing, who you're associating with, how obvious those things are. Are you a person of interest? Are, are you, are you somebody that somebody else would want to know? Um, and those all matter. And so just you know, don't be sloppy about that. It's something that you control. Yeah, well, I think in the virtual world that even though you don't like the word, I think the brand idea for sellers is very important and becoming more so. And you you have this stat in your book. I, I excerpted it and posted it on LinkedIn yesterday. Is that attributed appropriately to you? But saying that uh, you learned in your research that 82% of Buyers look up sellers on LinkedIn before replying to the seller's prospecting efforts. I mean, I'm glad to find see do some research around because I do it 100% of the time. I never I've informally talked to does it virtually all the time. Is is they're looking at who you are, and we know based on some research, like Challenger Sales, that 53% of the decision criteria is based on the buyer's experience. Well, that experience is you. Yeah. And so the brand, if you're ignoring what you're doing on LinkedIn, if you're ignoring how you come across, if you're ignoring this brand, which I think is hugely important. And there's a, a company set up now, Casey Graham, who is CEO of a company called Gravy Solutions, I believe, Payment Solutions, mm-hmm. uh, started a company called Command AF, which is designed to help people build their brand. Very, very important. And so if yeah. you're a seller and you know now that one of the first things that happens when you send something out to a buyer, it catches their interest, they look you up on LinkedIn. To your point, are you a person of interest? Right? Do you, They're going to say, do you have something to add? Yeah, it's a, it, it is that value proposition playing out in a slightly different arena. It's, have you published anything interesting? Do you know people who I might be interested in knowing? Do we have anything in common in terms of organizations? Are you sharing interesting interesting content? Yeah, is the content uh, beneficial? Do you, you know what what companies have you worked for? What positions? All of that. It, it, it you know, and again, I, I, I don't want to dismiss the term brand. What I don't want people to uh, infer from that is that it's false or that it's it's something that you're cultivating that's just for looks. It is authentic and it's you, and you have to work at it. And it's not something that you can change overnight. Um, there are things that you can do technically immediately that to, to to come across more professionally, but this building of a brand is an authentic exercise that takes a long time to cultivate well because mm-hmm. it's about having real connections, real content, and real interactions exposed well 
in a LinkedIn profile and elsewhere. So it's um, it's uh, not something that you can take lightly and just do once and just walk away and say, "Yep, I'm branded." Uh, <laughs> well, I so I I get I get messages all the time from people on LinkedIn asking for advice about career and jobs and so on. And and I got this one message from somebody yesterday who was saying that he was looking for a new opportunity and and he wanted to use LinkedIn to sort of connect with people, but or no, excuse me, it was his for prospecting, not for he's looking for the other one of sort of uh, looking for a job. This guy person was wanting to use LinkedIn for prospecting. And you know, we go back and forth. I said, you know, just look at your about summary. Yeah, I bet mm-hmm. you that 90% of salespeople listening to this, if you look at your summary on LinkedIn profile, your about section, you're describing what you want your next job to be. That's right. Instead of saying, what's the value that I can provide to you, the buyer, in this upcoming transaction? Yeah, I think you've nailed it. If there's one thing to do, it's, it's to make the story about how you help, how you're helpful, what value do you bring? Um, yeah, it, it, because LinkedIn, you know, traditionally was set up as a job hunter site and people sort of filled it out like a resume, uh, there it remains, your resume. And that's not what a buyer is looking for. So well, LinkedIn's yeah. changed. Yeah, I mean, li- LinkedIn, 10 years ago, without a doubt, was all about finding a job. <laughs> now it's about where this is where business is done. Right. And yeah, if you're a seller, you just have this one of again small things you just have to pay attention to because how are you going to attract the interest of of your prospects? Um, okay, so got a little off track on that, but yeah, I think that <laughs> we talked about keeping buyers engaged really important. Um, I think the challenges that you write about that buyers are finding is challenging, or we're challenging in. Pre-pandemic, whether it's virtual selling or not, yeah, you know, changing the buyer's point of view on what's possible and how to or how to solve a problem. Yeah, again, that's not medium dependent, and I, I'm not sure it gets any more difficult in a virtual world. I think it, it can because it starts with: Do you have the curiosity? Do you have an understanding? Do you have some acumen that can help them think differently, inspire them to think differently about yeah the scope of the problem they're trying to cho- excuse me trying to solve and and the uh, potential outcomes they can realize. Yeah, I, I think you know, getting back to this theme of was it happening before? It, is it different in terms of the what before and after pandemic? No. Is it slightly harder to do some of these things in a virtual setting over a Zoom call, or you know, if you lack the the social component in in some cases? So take take for example collaboration, which to us is one of the main elements of really good insight selling, where you're co-creating a solution mm-hmm. with the buyer, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're inventing something that otherwise wouldn't exist, and you're bringing value, not just because of what you sell, but how you approach the problem as the salesperson, as the seller, as the collaborator. And so this, this collaboration that now has to happen in a new medium I think you just have to realize as a seller how to do it, right? That it's um, it's slightly different in terms of how the presentation works. You have to leave a little bit of white space. You have to invite your buyer into that. It, it could be as simple as, again, using annotation and different types of decks and 
uh, whiteboarding sessions, but also recognize that you're not going to have somebody participate in a four-hour marathon on a Zoom call where you're going to co-create something. Like, just set it up correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, to your point, the intentionality of co-creating something would have been a challenge before or after. And you have to have that mindset. And, and so some of this is just about execution. So that brings up a, a question, and for me, which is a big one. And again, not to, to pick on, on the book, because it's a good book, and I recommend people read it. It's, it's just, there's a perspective, I think, that's, that's missing, regardless of whether it's uh, you know, virtual, in-person, however. Uh, is Because I think there's just this dramatic, misalignment between the sales process and the buying process. Mm-hmm. And when I mean, you guys mentioned the book is you know job of successful sellers to guide buyers through the sales cycle. And I have to admit, I mean, I always look at it as my jobs to guide them through their buying journey. And I think that's a fundamentally different perspective. Because one's about me, one's about them. Right. Um, and and so I've yeah, I love what Gartner did a couple years ago. They came up with their research about the buying journey, and and they identified four jobs that buyers do. You know, it's not steps in a process. Four jobs, and yeah, you know, define a problem, research available alternatives, finalize the requirements, which basically is answer the question how you're going to solve the problem, and the fourth one is select a vendor, which is who you're going to solve it with. And I've, I've yet to see somebody write a anything, book, article, whatever. It says, what well, isn't it time we align our selling process specifically with the steps the buyer needs to accomplish? And maybe this is a good opportunity, since we're having this sort of reset to some degree with virtual selling, mm-hmm. to actually do that. Yeah, and so um, understanding a little bit about how we approach it, and I think we're like-minded in certain ways here, is you know, to some degree, a buyer is going to be able to articulate a problem, right? So identifying a problem they need to solve or thinking about something that they like to do differently that they're, that's known. Um, a seller can help solve that problem, but we also believe that sellers are, to some degree, trying to help buyers understand the impact of doing something entirely different mm-hmm. and Agreed. helping to think about things more aspirationally. Yep. And to create a larger gap on behalf of the buyer, right? It, it's pointless if it doesn't create value, but on behalf of the buyer, they're helping to, them to visualize something that doesn't exist. And so to the extent that you're taking the buyer on a bit of a journey, um, it doesn't start until you understand the afflictions, right? What is going on? What, what problem do you have? Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be talking. Um, and And the other part of it is getting the buyer to think about, well, what are the different approaches that, I've, that I have available to me? And understanding that you have to work through all of those. And that is part, part of the buyer job, right? They're assessing from their point of view, what are the possible solution sets? Mm-hmm. Can I do it myself? Can I buy a solution? Can I leave it alone and nothing bad will happen? Lots of different things that might occur. So as a seller, your job is to, to work through those approaches and help the buyer to, to conclude that, the approach that you're advocating for as the seller is probably a good idea to explore further. So, you know, whether it's having aspirations around things that we might not do um, normally, thinking about approaches and trying to select those that are best for the buyer, 
Um, and then helping them, obviously, as you get deeper into the sales cycle, you want the buyer to select you and, and to do it now and to think about, you know, you as a partner. But I, I think on the, on, the, on the front end of the sales cycle, I hope I'm connecting with your idea, which is you, you're trying to meet the buyer where they are in terms of the job that they need to do, but you're also trying to stretch the thinking and bring it perhaps to a different place. Right. And a great explanation. So the step that's missing is, you know, if you look at a, a sales process such as is uh, that uh, maybe steps is defined, you see them in CRM system, yeah, we've got sure. discovery, qualification, blah, 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 blah. You know, none of those relate to what the buyer is doing. So my point is, why isn't the first step in a sales process help the buyer define the problem? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Yeah. Then the the next step, yeah, you know, is, is you talked about. Is, yeah, their their next job is they're going to evaluate alternatives in the market, right? Because they're in this mode about still trying to decide how they're going to solve their problem. And we just seem to have this disconnect. And I think it the disconnect influences how sellers perceive what it is they need to be doing. If they say, "Oh, my job is to do a discovery call," it's like, "Well, okay." There's multiple problems with that. One is there's not just one discovery call in a sales process or mm-hmm. a buying journey. You're going to discover every you're going to discover every time you interact with that buyer. But we set it up now. It's like, oh, well, I've exited that stage. I'm done. Yeah, I think that that linear that linear thought process is dangerous, right? To the extent that it might take you all the way till the end until the person trusts you enough mm-hmm. to the point where you you will have them admit that the driving force is fear of failure and they're on the hook for the solution working in the last three times they tried it failed miserably so now now we're really talking about something but it might take you seven calls to get there because they just don't trust you yet right so you know you can go through the uh, sort of vanilla discovery session in the beginning but you're not going to get that um you know that's that's just good technique and and always be curious always be asking questions discovery doesn't end right i agree 100 percent. but this is not how people are trained yeah it's right it's not how the, it's not what the process encourages look we've got exit criteria for our discovery stage and it's like mm, okay <laughs> yeah that's a that's problematic right there because in addition to everything you said is what happens to the buyer as they go through this buying journey and they talk to multiple vendors who all have their own perspectives and insights they share is the buyer's perception of what they're trying to achieve and maybe even the scope of the problem they're trying to solve changes. Mm-hmm. I've rarely, it's on big deals and I worked big deals my entire career. The buyer rarely you know, ended up in the same spot they started in terms of what they thought they were going to ch- accomplish. And that's, and that's necessarily, that should be the case if you're doing a great job selling to them. But that means you need to keep discovering every step of the way. And so this, yeah, I've just, I know I'm sort of rambling on, but it's just like, I think this is one of the things that's really holding sales back is we just, we're still teaching a sales process that's a hundred years old. Yeah. I mean, I hope, uh, I, I, I hope it doesn't come across this, that way in terms of the way we think about it. We think no, I about thought it. I, thought, I liked what you said. Yeah. And we, we, we talk about it and this is not to promote the book, but we, we reference case making in the book as a major part of the seller's job is thinking about the cases that need to be made. But I don't think we're suggesting that the cases need to be made in a particular process or order. 
I mean, certainly there's some logic to the way that things might lay out. Early calls are different than calls later on when you've built relationships, but you never stop making cases. To me, that's if you get good at anything, and this is not a virtual selling component, it is how to think about making a case for change. And the change can be based on what the what the buyer uh, originally came to talking about, or it could be something that's discovered along the way, or it could be something based on, you know, the buyers changed their mind because they talked to C-suite and, uh, you know, budgets have, have shifted and mm-hmm. things happen. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be able to make a new case. Um, or you learned a new fact later on that uh, changed the ROI story, um, you know, exponentially, and you want to talk about impact, so you have to make an impact case. Mm-hmm. So it's just having that in your in your um, sort of thought process around case making, and it's not a matter of the order, but a matter of the, the completeness is is probably you know the way we would we would think about it. Yes, in our book, but also just in general. All right. Well, good. Well, Dave, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but. Um I appreciate you taking the time to join me. And so if people want to learn more about the book and where they can get that and to contact you, how can they do that? Yeah, just um, uh, find me on LinkedIn, um, Dave Shaby Rain Group. And, uh, you know, the book is on Amazon, Virtual Selling, Rain Group, um, easy to find. So happy to talk to anybody. If you want to message me on LinkedIn, it's probably the best way. Perfect. Yeah, it's amazing how over the course of five plus years of doing this podcast is people's answers on how to connect with them has changed almost uniformly. <laughs> no one gives out emails anymore. That stopped about you know, three years ago, two and a half years ago, and it's all just LinkedIn now. So, yes. all right, Dave, thanks. thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. You take care now. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Dave Shaby for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much, as always, for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.